All right. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Matthew here just with a quick little update, a quick little footnote, front note, side note, intro note, some sort of a note uh, before we jump into this class, class episode with John Bradford. First of all, the conversation you're about to hear was recorded, you know, back in the good old days, whenever we could do face-to-face interviews, it was done in Ormo Bass in our beautiful, beautiful studio uh, that we're so chuffed to have there. We miss the Omobas team, we miss the community there, we miss being able to talk to people in person, but we are very, very grateful that it looks like things are changing and things are changing quickly. In light of that, we will be going back down to our usual one episode a week, uh, released every single Monday morning, just like this one is. This is a somewhat of an official end to our quarantine phone call series that we've been doing uh, over the last few months during lockdown. It has been an absolute blast. We've had the chance to do almost 50 interviews over the last few weeks, which has been absolutely incredible. It does look like we're going to have to continue to do remote interviews for a while here, but they will be less kind of lockdown oriented focused and more back to the usual Best of Belfast style and format that I love and that I hope you love too. So that's it. Just wanted to pop in, say hello, quick message from the future and uh, really excited to share this conversation with you. It's an absolute scorcher of an interview. It's a belter. Don't know why I'm using uh, heat language to describe a conversation, but it's great stuff and uh, it is absolutely packed full with some serious, serious golden nuggets and uh, some great wisdom in there as well. All right. I can't actually remember what the first part of this episode was so um hard cut should i make a transition noise i might all right i'll make a transition noise and then we'll go into whatever is coming up next you up at belfast no i've i've i'm terrible i genuinely don't have like when people say i was three years old and (laughs) i can remember uh i no i i i have a <laughs> um, somebody once said, um, "You can remember about eight hundred names or a thousand names." Um, and I looked at my LinkedIn, and it says seven thousand, which is nothing to be boastful about. It's like as you put one new bra- name in the the brain, one falls out the other side. <laughs> so, how many names do you think you kind of have in your capacity? Um, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I'm really, I'm really, really bad with names. Even, even I can be looking at a complete like somebody who I know really, really well, and you just have one of those moments, and you go, "I can't remember your name." Hey, bro. Hey, how's it going? What's the crack? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's an age thing. So, um, I mean, are you talking like ten years old? Or are you talking like fifteen years old? First memory. Um, I probably would struggle with. Uh, I can pro- I can remember everything. Kind of this going to be really sad from secondary school onwards. Yeah, if you kind of push me for like eleven below, tricky. There's nothing obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing. Let's be honest. There's nothing really that exciting happened <laughs> in my life between zero and eleven. What so, was uh, where was home for you? Home was um, Randallstown, uh, which is as I would describe. The, the the hamlet or the village at the end of the M4. Four? Four? Is that correct? <laughs> Show my age. Or on the B-52 yeah. um, to Portland on. Um, I can remember it because it's like the B-52, that's a big bomber. I can remember this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I spent probably more of my formative um, youth in Ballymena. 
Nice. Um, in Cambridge House for Boys. Um, because I wasn't smart enough to get to uh, the Ballymena Academy. Those those that know will know what I mean by that. Actually, the irony was I probably was smart enough, but um, uh, I I didn't come from a doctor's uh, family or sure. I didn't come from a farming background, yeah. so they sent me to Cambridge House. There you go. Mate, that's the way it is. I'm going to read the loose bio that you sent through <laughs> <laughs> just to give uh, a bit of context for the people listening in to see us like half an hour yeah. of uh, of interviewing. I am the doer of many things badly. Hey, you took the took the first sentence right out of my <laughs> mouth. So that's what you sent through. Um, I did do a quick Google search to piece something together for the people listening. So according to Google, you know, John is a highly experienced early stage investor, MD of Techstars London, co-founder of Omo Bass, Ignite, FS6 tech.eu and this is the best one you've been described as you can probably finish the sentence oh um I've been described as the the godfather of European accelerators <laughs> which which I'm sure you're just chuffed about that <laughs> which I, no in fairness it was it was a comment which was made years and years ago um but it either, in retrospect, it now just makes me feel really old. <laughs> or, or alternatively, if you use that statement in the States, in the US, the godfather of something really yes. means something totally of different. Of course. You've so, wiggled your way in maliciously <laughs> into the tech world. Absolutely. Uh, so I asked a couple of people close to John to describe him. They said things like, he's one of the smartest investors I know and has learned the art of asking the hard questions, which makes me feel like we should swap seats today. Uh, sure someone true. else said, John is like a sneaky ninja working behind the scenes to make magic happen. And um, big Steve Petty said that he's a man of few words who likes brevity and getting to the point. So <laughs> I will take that lesson on board. Uh, get straight to the point. Delighted to have you here, John. And I'm looking forward to find out more about things like but not necessarily your origin story lessons you've learned along the way and uh, your favorite quote from yoda so uh for people who've just jumped in uh you've all listened more looking forward to to look forward to on today's show and uh yeah really hope you enjoy hi this is john bradford and you're listening to the best of belfast all right folks what's the crack my name is matthew thompson and welcome to best of belfast the podcast that celebrates Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. Our weekly, unfiltered conversations give you the opportunity to get to know and learn from some of the interesting people who call this place home. The show is brought to you from a recording studio in Ormo Baths, Barclays Eagle Labs, an old Victorian bathhouse built in 1888 that's now been transformed into a tech hub and a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. We're a crowdfunded show. We're supported by people who love Northern Ireland and believe we have a better story to tell. Listeners just like you who pledge as little as £5 a month to get behind-the-scenes access, invitations to live podcasts, and the chance to submit questions to our guests. To find out more, get in touch or check out our back catalogue of over 100 incredible interviews, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Okay, that's it for me for now. It's time to jump straight back into our conversation with this week's local legend. Really hope that you enjoy. And then music and fanfare. Yeah. And bells what and was whistles. the Yoda quote? I can't remember. Don't worry, I'll prompt you. Uh, well, no, I genuinely can't. So it was um, 
do or not do, there's no try. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. <laughs> is that, does that resonate with you in any way or was that just that? No, it was somebody once said something, which is if you're going to do something, just do it. Mm. Just don't be half-arsed. And kind of as you as you get older, what you recognize is you can spend a lot of time wasted just doing lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, most of which is just drivel and irrelevant. Um, and just trying to figure out what you really, really enjoy mm-hmm. and just do more of it and just cut out the, um, the other stuff. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. So what have been some of the stuff that you've cut out along the way? What's the drivel that you've learned? This is not for me and this is not a good use of my time. Um, that's a good question. I th- I think there's there's nothing obvious, but I think you just become much more decisive in your decision making um, when you try to do things. Having said that, probably my biggest flaw is I'm really bad at saying no to people. <laughs> if, if people ask me to do something or if I think I can help, I will try and do. And hence the statement of I I'm the doer of many things badly, mm. which is I I subconsciously think that if I did one less thing in my kind of multitude of all the things I do. I probably do everything else a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but I'm very, very bad at the, oh, but I could do this and I could help here. <laughs> um, so, If you were to ballpark, how many coffees to pick your brain do you think you've had over the lifetime? Um, I, I actually turn it the other way around. I think of it as personal development. Mm-hmm. Like if you imagine you have... Um, when you're self-employed, um, you don't have like some HR department breathing down your neck saying, what are you doing for personal development? <laughs> so I, I consciously um, try to meet people for breakfast. So breakfast is my personal development time. Nice. And I go and grab breakfast with people. Um, and if I'm not doing breakfast with somebody two or three days a week, um, I'm probably not meeting enough people. Yeah. So, so it, it's sort of selfish, which is why on one hand you might perceive that I'm helping you because you've asked me to talk to you about something. The flip side is I have an hour of learning about something I didn't know before. Mm. So, um, And by – there's two, two parts. One is you're broadening your network, and the second one is um, you're just learning more about stuff. And actually just being forced to think about something different makes you kind of work your brain a little bit harder about mm-hmm. I don't know anything about the subject how could I help mm-hmm. so what do you think that have you always had that kind of desire to learn about many things and do many things no having said that if you spoke to my grandfather a very long time ago he said that's a very yeah we've got a really strange child who sits <laughs> in the corner of the room and reads um um dictionaries and things like that. I'd be one of those kind of weird children. (laughs) I'm going to read the uh, Britannica. What was it? Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia Britannica. Britannica. I would just sit and just read that as a child. Um, And it's just drivel. It's just Yet I asked you for your favorite book and you were like, that's uh, that's biased against dyslexics. <laughs> yeah. So so I have this I have this running thing which is there's this seems to be this ego thing which is you get to a certain part in a podcast and somebody mm-hmm. says what's the most yeah, interesting yeah. book you've read, it read is, recently? It's a cliche. Yeah. Total cliche. Yeah. And I go actually I don't really read that much. Mm-hmm. And part of it is 
and I can now see it in retrospect. And I'm not dyslexic because I do know people who are dyslexic and I wouldn't want to uh, undermine kind of the profound issues that come with that. But I genuinely do struggle. Like I, when I write things, I will drop words. Um, when I read things, I won't read them properly. Yeah. Um, so I describe it as I'm either lazy, stupid or <laughs> dyslexic or a combination of those three things. But it does bias conversations away from this kind of idea that sure. you have to read books. Yeah. Now, in today's environment, which is why this is interesting, is with podcasts, with video, there's other ways that you can consume content that you couldn't have done 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Or the closest thing to that was Tomorrow's World. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so I've been coming back to it. What's interesting is, to your previous statement, I'm actually much more interested in speaking to people. Yeah. Because it's less taxing on my brain. Absolutely. Than necessarily having to read something. Yeah. And you know yourself, like if you're sitting at a desk all day and you're involved in tech in any sort of way, although most of us are on a computer, no matter what you're mm-hmm. kind of in, like the last thing you want to do is go home and read more stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I love sticking a podcast on and you know, yeah. you, you said you're a runner. Like I'm sure you listen to podcasts when you run. Yeah. Maybe you don't. I do run naked. Meaning no headphones? No, no headphones. Nice. Yeah, yeah not the, the <laughs> it's a metaphorical <laughs> statement. Otherwise they'd have probably locked me up by this point. <laughs> well, I have to say, I actually have started driving and walking naked in that context then, yeah. because I realized I was probably, I probably needed that wee bit of space just uh-huh. to not listen. Yeah. If you know what I mean. So that's been helpful. Um, talk to me about original thought. Like a lot of people, particularly in our Northern Irish context, when it comes to starting a business, and I do lots of stuff with young enterprise and I mm-hmm. sort of around the entrepreneurial scene, there's all these workshops about creativity and coming up with new ideas. Mm-hmm. What do you think about new ideas? What do you think about original thought? Do you think there even is such a thing as original thought? No, I, I, I'd be pretty controversial and say that there's, there is 1% of everything we do which is original thought. Um, and there are very smart people who are sufficiently creative to do that. But most, most things which exist in today's environment are a combination of pre-existing ideas. They just might be put together in a different format or actually, because we're talking about technology, technology catches itself up to the point where um, the sufficient infrastructure or whatever you might want to describe to, to make a, an idea that didn't work before mm-hmm. work again. So most of the bonkers ideas that came through in 2000 actually now exist. Funny. Um, but the technology at that point was not sufficiently progressed to allow for it to actually exist in that environment. Mm-hmm. So, um, And there's, there's a, a few blog posts which talk about this is the 2000 startup and this is the 2020 startup yeah. and you can see them line for line. Yeah. Um, so, so timing has a part of it, but it's how you like, let's be honest. Uber is not a creative original idea. Oh yeah, sure. But the way it's put together, the timing of the technology all makes and the sheer brute force of the entrepreneur to, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, drives that to a, a greater place. So, so what to your original question? Um, people shouldn't get stressed out about saying, "I need to come up with something completely profoundly new that nobody's ever heard of before." 
Um, there's a business in Berlin called Rock Internet, which was very well known for copying American ideas <laughs> and, and creating a European version of it. Um, and they made a lot of money from it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not super creative, but it doesn't mean you can't build a big business from it. And they've sure. done very, very well. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the format of the show, this is not an original show. This is basically Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan in a Northern Irish context. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so yeah. it, you see that it works. You see that there's a gap somewhere else and you, you kind of come home as yeah. I did. And you're like, hey, this would be fun. Let's do this. Yeah. The, the world is now uh, much more interconnected than it was before. Technology has moved on in such a way that you can actually build products and niches that are actually pretty big niches. Um <laughs> without necessarily being hung up about it. The, the other practical thing is you don't need to ask for permission the way in broadcasting you might have 20 or 25 years ago. You equally, the, the cost of being able to do many things has mm. profoundly fallen through the floor. So it creates opportunities where they wouldn't have existed before. Yeah. And so there is that kind of like global interconnectedness where you can replicate things but there still is that very hyper local infrastructure and economy that's in place that's mm -hmm. a very common thing to say the question that i'm trying to get to is have you noticed working with lots of different accelerators and tech hubs around the world that the geographic location or culture or pre-existing industry plays a big role on that specific hub yeah. Man, I should have found a way to find yeah, like yeah. a five word, but there yeah. you go. Yeah, which is, are certain places better predisposed to doing things? You just processed places? me. Cheers. <laughs> it's, it's called, I mean, the simple ones are, if you look at London, um, when it kind of initially came through in 2000, it was very ad centric. And guess what? London and New York are the ad centers of the world. Mm. You can see versions of this around fintech. You go to Israel, cyber is a, is a big part of culture. Um, and then it kind of bleeds into the, the technology side on the other side. Um, the, the challenge you have is do you have enough people who care profoundly to actually sit in a room and actually work kind of quasi-competitively but mm. together at the same time and kind of build from those background yeah. But yeah, ev everywhere has some unfair advantage. There's yeah. another way of describing it. What would you say Northern Ireland's or Belfast's unfair advantage is? I don't think it's clear yet, yeah, if I'm being honest. I think that's fair. Um, I think London, Old Street and Tech City has really only been around for 10 or 12 years. Now, it's come a long way in 10 or 12 years. And by the way, if you think about the life cycle of when you start a business to when it kind of IPOs, it's about 10 years. Mm. So I think you have this challenge, which is um, lots of people want to run before they can walk. Um, clearly, government will always have money to spend. Um, and they tend to, the good ones tend to say, well, we're going to throw a whole bunch of stuff at the wall. And we, we're going to learn that sometimes it sticks and sometimes it doesn't. I think the problem sometimes government has is historically is not being able to walk away from something and say, we tried, it didn't work, yeah. but at least we tried. Like uh, Concord, the sunk cost, just yeah. constantly putting the money into Correct. it. Yeah. 
Um, things which, which the, the thing which actually really interests me is Northern Ireland has had this kind of weird dynamic between um, it has a big public sector, which I which everybody recognises is a real long term problem, and it needs to kind of shift away from that. But equally, on the other side of that, it has a very strong private company economy because actually nobody comes to Northern Ireland. Nobody wants to try and sell anything <laughs> in Northern Ireland. So you don't have the same um, uh, multi-overseas-type uh, businesses coming here. So if you want to do something here, you've probably got somebody in – Shane has decided to <laughs> he wants to be the biggest photocopier engineer in the whole of Northern Ireland and just goes and does that and does yeah. it really well. So there is this like latent entrepreneurial I'm going to go and start my own business bit. Um, to my point um, the bit that Northern Ireland has done really really well historically is light engineering and kind of aerospace and they're kind of all sort of interconnected. Yeah, yeah. The challenge that you have is how do you take something which is almost quasi-manufacturing and what does that look like over the next 10 or 20 years? So um, I think that's a challenge because my background tends to be I invest in software-type businesses. And part of that might be software-related, but there's a whole bunch of what they call now additive manufacturing and things like that. So, um, But it takes the industry itself to want to change and to want to grow. If you're a pre-existing family business, those are really hard and big decisions to make. Mm. And from the outside, if you're 21, so to speak, and you've just left university, you really don't spend a lot of time thinking about additive manufacturing. <laughs> you probably, as I describe, you, you worry about uh, going out on a Saturday night, um, whether that's Tinder, you worry about getting up on a Sunday morning with a banging headache and thinking about how can somebody send me some food that's yeah. called Deliveroo. Sure. It's not un unsurprising that <laughs> some of these problems are problems which 20-somethings want to fix. Mm. Um, big enterprise-type businesses are things which don't come from 21-year-olds. They come from 30-somethings. Yeah. And trying to encourage some level of entrepreneurship, not from the 20-something generation, but from the 30-something and the 40-somethings Interesting. Is, is one of the ways you can shift up an economy. Yeah, because there are, there are you know, the exceptions to the rule where it's the 20-year-old who goes out and starts Facebook. Yep. Even in that, it's the 40, 50, 60s and 70-year-olds who bankroll that. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right. I think there maybe has been a bit of an emphasis on the young 20-year-old rather than the 30, 40 year old. Yeah, but if you break the model very simplistically, you've got B2C and B2B. Okay. B2C, I want to make um, dog chews that <laughs> my dog really likes. You, you sell it as a B2C. Yeah. It's like, I'm a consumer. Yeah. I want this product. I'm going to go and build a consumer, a B2C business. Enterprise business systems, B2B, mm -hmm. you sort of have to have been in the business yeah. to have been. People fix their own problems. So you sort of have to have been in a, an enterprise or a business and gone, that's a problem that's worthy of fixing. So yeah. if you think that, particularly for first-time entrepreneurs, 90% totally made-up statistic of new businesses exist because they're trying to fix something that they have seen before in their, yes. in their life. Uh -huh. 
And so therefore, if you're 21, coming back to it, it's the who will I go out with on a Saturday night <laughs> problem and, and how do I not have to get out of bed and have something sent to me yeah. type problem. Yeah, yeah. Over generalization, but you kind of get sure. where you're coming from. And that's probably why I'm just externally processing here. Again, another made-up statistic. Like 80% of everyone's first business is like a t-shirt business. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think hopefully we're past that. But yeah. Um, but, but it's the uh, sitting here in Oma Bass, Lots of 20-somethings, but how do you engage, not the 20-somethings, how do you engage the 30-somethings, how do you engage the 40-somethings? Yeah. I think that's where, as I say, you suddenly have genuine economic shifts. And by the way, I think it's it's not a made-up statistic, but the average age of a successful entrepreneur is about 40. Wow. So it's much, much later in life. Um, But trying to get a generation of people who have had jobs Mm – and have decided to leave a very comfortable job and then go and do something else is 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 culturally a hard thing sure. to, to make people do. And then if you paint with a very, very broad brush, you would say that the 40-year-olds are also probably less tech-native than the yeah. 20-year-olds coming yeah. up as well, which is just another obstacle in that kind of way, I suppose. It, it can be. It, it. I think that's where you suddenly have to try and do things where you blend experience and knowledge with technical expertise, mm. which is the the person starting the business who wants to fix the problem doesn't mean you can't work with a 20-something who's got the software capabilities or the engineering capabilities to do those yeah. things. So it's, it's – but as I describe entrepreneurship as a contact sport, um, <laughs> it's all about having lots of people bump into each other yeah. and exchange ideas and exchange views um, and it's when you have all of these things, as they bleed across the edges, um, you create much more interesting opportunities for mm-hmm. everybody involved. So even though we live in this digital world and you're listening to this in a podcast and you've downloaded it on your mobile device, entrepreneurship really is a get in a room and have a conversation with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where, as I, I described, the interesting stuff really happens. Yeah. Uh, I'll not push you on this if if you know, we can edit this out as well, but do you think that there's anything that comes to mind that is holding Northern Ireland back as a culture strictly just in this startup entrepreneurship sort of world? I think, so where do I think that Northern Ireland is probably being held back? I think the the legacy of everything which has happened in Northern Ireland over the last 40, 50 years has led to a disproportionately large public sector. Mm. And so therefore, um, and we've had this inside Ormo Bass, one of our original employees decided that she wanted to leave Ormo Bass and go and join the police force mm-hmm. um, in a desk job. I wasn't in the police um, because she felt that it was better paid, yeah. it had a good pension, it had all of these perks. I, and that's probably the biggest thing which is um, culturally a real headache. The other one that's a real challenge, and this this tends to be more so when you get away from London and large metropolitan areas, is people turn up at nine and they leave at five Mm -hmm. because they've seen that from their parents and that's kind of culturally what happens. Um, I, my, maybe I'm just the wrong person to speak to about it, 
but I kind of, everything blends on the edges. Mm -hmm. It's like I can start late, I can start early, I can work late, I can leave early. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not bounded by this kind of nine to five culture. I, yeah. I do what is necessary to get my job done. Yes. And even more so as a self-employed. And those that are self-employed will appreciate that as well. Yeah. But there, there's probably quite a big fracture between the nine to fivers and and the self-employed. Yeah, the uh, the five to niners. <laughs> five to niners. Yeah, the, the, other, the other part of that is I, I genuinely want people to be able to look out a window and say, do I want to do this or do I want to do something different? And trying to break the cultural barriers between those two. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, I'm a great believer in self-determination. Mm -hmm. I believe that I've discovered late in my uh, career that actually working for myself was much less stressful, which sounds ridiculous <laughs> than working for somebody else. Because if you're working for somebody else, somebody else has to worry about payroll and you get paid at the end of mm -hmm. every month and blah, blah, blah. But I strongly believe that even though you might get paid less, you can actually have a much more enjoyable life and a much broader spectrum of experience mm -hmm. being self-employed and just it's it's odd, but it is less stressful. Um, but it it you have to learn to. It's really on your own shoulders yeah. whether there's money in the bank at the end of the month or mm -hmm. not. And it's not in retrospect. It's l much less scary than you would anticipate on the other side. Yeah, yeah. Once you get there, yeah, that's the hard bit, isn't it? And and the advantage of something like coming back to normal baths is you sort of culturally break that from day zero, which is you leave university. And then you try to persuade people to go and start their own businesses. Mm -hmm. Then they never knew what the nine to five culture looked like. Yeah. What led you to leave Northern Ireland? Um, the problems. I left when I was eighteen uh, and went to Bristol University. Um, and it was it was just more. I just come from a, a family environment, which was there is another part of the world out there. Yeah, go and see it. Yeah, and in fairness, uh, I've got a siblings, brother and sister, and all of us left. Wow, um, I just never went back. Mm -hmm. The other two have come back, um, and as I regularly say, and we jest about it, which is, uh, I have no plans to come back to Northern Ireland. Yeah, but it's not to say I don't not think about it. Sure, and I don't not care about it, um, and the stuff I'm doing here, hopefully, is a representation of. You don't have to be here mm. to be able to be part of the community and to help the, uh, provide support. And I've, you've heard this before. I'm a great believer in having seen what um, Israel has done in terms of its ability to leverage its diaspora outside of Israel across the world. Um, and to some degree in the South, um, the Irish have been increasingly getting smarter and better about leveraging those relationships. Um, they tend to be 71st generation Irish, <laughs> Polish, <laughs> something. But, but I, Northern Ireland has an amazing culture of education and very smart people that have gone off into the world and been hugely successful. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to engage with those people and leverage their talents and their capability and their networks for the broader benefit. 
as I describe, play emotional blackmail on me. So <laughs> you're not coming back, but what can you do to help yeah. the next generation? I have found to be hugely, hugely mm-hmm. successful. Based on what you've seen in Israel and other places, and again, this is on uncharted territory. I didn't expect us to go here. <laughs> uh, like, what do you think some of are some of the ways we could start to organize the diaspora? of people who have left Northern Ireland? I know that's a million pound question. (laughs) Well, the first thing is, those sorts of people tend not to like to be organized. (laughs) Um, I think the challenge you have is they they do want to help, but you have to figure out how do you get them to be able to be valuable and helpful without necessarily taking up disproportionately large parts of their time. Mm. So you kind of have to pick your asks mm-hmm. and be very precise, yeah. um, which, which practically is a process of knowing who are they mm-hmm. and what are the skill sets and where they could add value mm-hmm. um, and trying to understand what is important in their life. Um, so we have in the building today Sarah Fryer, um, who you've had on the podcast before, and she cares profoundly about being able to empower women to actually start their own businesses. Mm-hmm. So there's no point in me coming to her and saying, we've got this amazing software business that's <laughs> doing stuff in sports uh, or whatever it might be, because it's, yeah, that's sort of interesting. But if you lock in the, like, we've got a female entrepreneur that's just started a business, that's trying to do this, can she have 15 minutes of your time? Mm-hmm you're pushing on an open door. So yeah. it's trying to uh, understand the, the personalities. And the broader context of diaspora is it doesn't have to be, we're not talking about thousands of people. We're probably not even talking about hundreds of people. But we're probably talking about there are 30 or 40 people uh, around the world that really have unfettered access to amazing capabilities. Mm. And just being able to understand what you want and understand what they want and try to mix those two things together at the same time. Yeah. What would you like to see Ormo Baths achieve and go on from in the next, I hate these sort of questions, <laughs> five years. But so are you proud of what Ormo Baths has achieved so far? Oh, totally blown away. Awesome. Like it's- Did it exceed expectation? Oh, um, yes and more. Wow. Um, I think the thing that, I'll I'll be honest, we looked out on was um, there was a lot of debate around the use of the event space Mm -hmm. because it's like we could put more desks in there and make more (laughs) money. Um, But the motivation behind the building was never purely about how do we maximize profit. It was genuinely hand on heart. How do we just help the next generation? And using that as a physical space for more people to engage and to work together and to meet, coming back to the statement of entrepreneurship as a contact sport, is a really valuable asset. And the second one is um, Tristan Watson, um, who came in with Ignite. And in fairness, uh, the money which came in from InvestNI to help make that uh, propeller and Ignite program work has been amazing. Mm. Um, it's basically like a pump prime. It cu- year on year, brings in people, spits them out at the other end. Yeah. Um, and having him physically in the building, uh, which has now been taken over by Chris McClelland, who I've known for quite a long time, I think is amazing. 
um, I think the, the physicality of the space, but also more importantly, I think what I would describe the content in the building and people's personas, the, the mm. attitude that people who, it's hard to describe unless you spend time here of like the, we just want to go and do interesting things in our life. And there's a building full of people doing that. I, I think that my only frustration is if people know the building is, A, we can't extend it. We can't make it any bigger. <laughs> so we spend our life trying to think, how can we be more impactful within the physical constraints of the building? And you know this, which is we originally were in one half. We're now in mm-hmm. both halves. Yeah. So we're, we're out of halves. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um I, I won't be able to remember what company you're working for, but I remember hearing <laughs> one time uh, you you were um, working for, let's say, something like, but not necessarily a fund, and you had written nine out of your $150,000 checks. And oh, you, this, you, yeah. This one was, check left. Actually, probably, I don't think it's written down in it. It used to be called Northeast Finance. It was the Creative and Design Fund. It was now 10, 10 or 12 years ago. What country was that even in? I don't even know. It was know. in Newcastle. Newcastle, cool. So my wife's originally from Newcastle. Um, and there is so many comparisons between Newcastle and Northern Ireland, where, where Northern Ireland is physically uh, clearly across the water from <laughs> the greater part, which is the UK or England. Um, Newcastle sort of has. It's not physically an island, <laughs> but uh, people basically get to about Leeds. And then they go, <laughs> well, the next place is interesting as Edinburgh. We'll just fly. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so Newcastle has a very similar uh, culture of very pri- private businesses mm-hmm. that do really, really well um, and pretty entrepreneurial. Yeah. But they, they're entrepreneurial in bars and yeah. and kind of hospitality. And anybody who's been there for a um, hen night or a stag do will appreciate that. Um, so so culturally, they're very, very similar. Interesting. Very, very similar. So, yeah, so you had, you'd made nine larger investments. Yeah, yeah, larger checks. And um, you basically split the last check in 10 or something like yeah. that so you you've ins- done your homework in- instead of investing 150,000 in one company you decided hey let's invest 15,000 in 10 smaller companies correct how did that one decision kind of ripple into everything else you've done oh it it changed changed everything actually there's there's another piece which changed everything so coming back to our concept of original thought um totally shamelessly didn't even try to be original um, had a had seen this thing in California called Y Combinator and uh, in Boulder, Colorado called Techstars. And they were doing this, what is now known as an accelerator. At that point, it wasn't so obvious. Um, and it was the inspiration of what they had been doing. Um, don't tell anybody, I can probably, they don't exist anymore. But it was like, oh, I've got this amazing idea. I want to do this thing. It's like, they do it in California and they do it in Boulder. <laughs> we should do this in Newcastle. Like, but, but we can claim that we're the very first ones to do it outside of the US. Boom. Boom. There you go. Public sector. Yes. <laughs> and then I had to make it up. Um, the, the, so observationally, I kind of looked at it from the outside and went, oh, I'm sure we could do that. The second part 
uh, to to my father's credit, basically said, you should, really should go and see them um, because they know more about it than you do. Yeah. And actually, you might be surprised. They might tell you stuff. So I emailed Paul Graham. I have the email. And he basically said, look, I write essays. I've got a blog. I've got, I tell everything I can on blogs. I'm, I'm not talking to anybody. Don't come and see me. <laughs> and then I emailed David Cohen, who had set up Techstars. So this is 2009. And he essentially said, yeah, come and see me if you want to have a chat. So I got on a plane and doorstopped him. Um, <laughs> and we got along really well. Um, I think we were both very similar personality types in terms of the desire to just be helpful to other people. And um, uh, I then subsequently spent three days locked in a room with him just talking about what he'd been doing and saying this this is what I did and these are the mistakes and these bits worked and these bits didn't. Mm. And then launched what was originally called the Difference Engine 10-odd um, years ago. Wow. Um, which, in fairness, was about four or six weeks further advanced than a guy called Alex um, who set up Startup Bootcamp. So, <laughs> so I always kind of go, I got there first. That's why you're the godfather, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, actually, the reason I'm the godfather <laughs> is a different story, which was there's a, there's a strange video online you may have come across it on YouTube of a man standing on the side of a hill dancing. Have you ever come no, across it? No, I haven't seen it. Look it up, man dancing on the side of a hill. And he's kind of standing on this side of his hill, dancing like a lunatic. And then what happens is two or three other people yeah, join Yeah, I've him. seen the TED and talk, the actually. Whole, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then it kind of builds and it builds and builds. And the idea is who's the next person that comes and joins? And there's different people, how people join these cults. And so essentially, when I initially set this program up, I, similar to David, had a bunch of people who email me and say, we would like to do one of these things locally. Can you come and help? Or can you, can you, can you describe what you did? Yeah. And in the same way, in an open source type way that David had been hugely open and helpful to me, yeah. I subsequently went and helped a whole bunch of stuff, people. So good. So essentially, I think over a, the following 12 months, I ended up helping something like six or eight different accelerators across Europe. And so I had kind of my fingerprints. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's where the statement of the Godfather came gotcha. from. Gotcha. So, um, but then I went from, like, I'm this lunatic standing on the side of the hill <laughs> trying to explain what I'm trying to do to actually, there's lots of these things. And I was fortunate that because I was the first out of the blocks mm -hmm. and because I was kind of running a little bit faster than everybody else, I kind of could keep a competitive advantage to everybody else because they were on Gen 1 and I was on mm -hmm. Generation 2. Mm -hmm. um, but it demonstrates the power of, um, A, not being scared to ask someone and saying, can you help? Yeah. I think people are very nervous about asking someone and somebody saying no. Yeah. Like the worst thing, they, if the worst thing they can say is no, Nobody's died. And <laughs> two, um, we're now in a generation which is people are much more willing to share ideas and views mm -hmm. and thoughts and be much more creative about how you can just be expansive and helping. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would be interesting to kind of look at the hard data and the, the research behind it, if it does exist, which I'm sure it does. But how many, we're going to ballpark this, like how many of the, the people who come in through an accelerator and get the the 
the pump primed, as you yeah. said, and get the 15K or whatever it is and get the year to really go mm-hmm. after it. How many of them are successful? But then even more interestingly, how many of them, even if they fail, go on to start something that does work? Mm-hmm. So I think um, the second point is much more profoundly interesting than the fir- mm. first. So when we first started, um, there were no accelerators. I think we used to describe if 50% of the teams could go and raise money, we would be winning. Mm-hmm. That's, that felt like success. And it was disproportionately larger proportion than was readily available. In today's environment, 10 years later, um, I think the statistics probably much lower because yeah. it's now much more perceived as a, this is how you help start mm-hmm. or an onboarding ramp to, to a business. The point you made afterwards is actually much more interesting, I think, which is the idea that you go, your very first idea is going to be your successful idea, I think is just bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the chances are very, very slim. And so when you think about doing a pre-accelerator and accelerator, it's as much to do with, like, I can't afford to go to Harvard and do an MBA, but can somebody teach me the basics of um, what I need to do, how I need to think about customer development, blah, 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 all this stuff. And so because it's only 13 weeks and because it's only $10,000 or pounds or whatever the number is, you don't have the same overhead of, I now have to spend the next five years of my life building this business. <laughs> I've now got a million bucks. Actually, the irony is the more you raise, the more you feel beholden to making it a success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're trying to raise much smaller sums of money or just get started and using kind of the the things which come from the ideas from an accelerator is actually you get into it and go, this is a really bad idea. This is really, (laughs) this is never going to (laughs) work. And being able to get past, as I described, the bad ideas and get to the good idea and almost like saying, we need to do like four really bad ideas because when we've done four really bad ideas, I get much better at picking what the good idea is. Yeah. Um, So I think it's much more a, a device or a framework to get past your the bad ones. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like historically when I, for my generation, we would have done business plans. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I, I once had to sit through a business plan competition and um, it was done at a university, a very prestigious university. And uh, we were, he was pitching and he said, here's my business plan and this is what we're going to do. And I said, this is a terrible idea. It's really, <laughs> really, really bad idea because of this, this, this. Why are you doing this? And he kind of defended himself for about five minutes as best as he could. And then about five minutes and he broke down and said, actually, you're right. This is a really bad idea. <laughs> and the worst part was, actually, I knew this was a really bad idea about three weeks ago. Oof. Or it was actually even worse than that. It was like one term ago. Yeah, yeah. And I said, so why are you still doing it? I said, well, the professor told me that I had picked my idea at the start of the the term. And I had to keep going. Yeah. It's like, exactly. Like, you should be, like, moving, getting past the bad (laughs) one and getting into something much more interesting. Yeah. The the process of figuring out what a bad idea looks like Mm. makes you better at figuring out what a good idea might look like. Yeah. Uh, this is completely unfounded because I have no experience with this. <laughs> but what I have perceived in this imaginary world of my head is that a lot of the guys locally, when their first one doesn't work, 
they seem less likely to give it another go than in other parts of the world. Like, there's people I know very well, and they, you know, their first startup, they've maybe gone through an accelerator, and they're just crushed. Yep. And then they fall back into, I'm going to become a civil servant, or I'm going to do X, oh, Y, and Z. you're killing me. Just a little bit of me just died. Yeah. <laughs> like, again, this is just all made up, but why do you think the Northern Irish context takes that... Failure That's, and shame a bit more heavier. Yeah, so I I think so. I would say to you that that's not an unreasonable thing for somebody to do. Mm. Uh, joining the civil service might be a little bit too far on that <laughs> journey, but it's not unreasonable. the The amount of energy and effort uh, and mental well being that goes into um, doing a startup is should not be underestimated. And I always say to people who just come out of that experience, which is the best thing you can do is go and find a job to work for somebody else. Mm. Now, in a perfect world, but we're not in a perfect world here in Northern Ireland just yet, is I would say go and join another startup, Mm -hmm. but one which is uh, better funded, slightly later stage. Yeah. You can still experience and learn what the next step looks like on somebody else's tab. Genius. Um, and you don't have to worry about the, I do I get paid at the end of every month yeah, 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 type yeah. stuff. So you're not kind of completely pulling yourself out. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you go from one startup to another startup to another one that you founded and another one and another one mm-hmm. is brutal. And and actually, you, it's not going to help anybody. I always say that at the point, I was talking to somebody quite recently about this, that at the point something fails or even actually exits, it works actually both ways. You almost need to take 12 months out of just giving your brain like like a little bit of sabbatical. (laughs) And actually what's interesting is there's two parts, which is there's a physical part and there's a mental part. And typically you physically can recover from the stresses and strains within about three or four months. Yeah. Yeah, you, you catch up on sleep, blah, blah, blah. But actually what people then do is they tend to rush back because they feel physically better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reality is you your brain doesn't untangle itself uh, as quickly. It just takes a lot more processing mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so finding something to give you that stopgap of that at least 12 months. But coming back to my point, which is if there's the opportunity to go and join another startup, which is like a Series A or a slightly later stage, that's great because you're now doing the same thing without certain stresses and strains. Yeah but you're learning a different skill set so that if you do do the startup again and it is successful and you get to that stage, you've had exposure to what that looks like and what that feels like because you're sort of making it all up. Yeah, yeah. And so the more you can gain across the board, I think it's really interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really, really good. But please don't join the civil service. (laughs) I always say, no disrespect to the civil servants listening. Some I always end up slacking them. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, they have an important job. But um, in, yeah. in my we, world, my, my, my job, my day job is to get up and encourage entrepreneurs yeah. to, to do more sure. faster. Yeah, that's good. Um, going to shift gears slightly here and kind of move into the stock questions we always hey. uh, end the interview on. Way hey! All the usual uh, cliched podcasty stuff. Uh, just before I do that, there's a there's an, an idea for a podcast that I've been thinking of for Are a few months. Are you pitching me? 
I'm pitching you, yeah. I'm pitching anyone listening, anyone under the sound of my voice. Uh, if anyone wants to do this, please do it. I haven't got a name yet. Please, but it's, please it's, steal this idea. Yeah, please steal this idea. It's something like, um, I would call it like spare domains. Okay. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this habit of buying loads of domains like they'll have an idea like yeah. a random shower idea yeah. and they'll immediately just buy the the, the, yeah. the, the, the domain um do you do you how many domains do you own do you um, have any domain ideas that are sitting around that you're like oh man no um i've i've kind of culled back i, I go through moments of it um but i'm no i'm pretty light on domains at this point there's one in particular which is i have if I was to go off and do uh, a brand new venture fund on my own, I, I have a particular domain which works perfectly. And it was like, oh, my God, I see that domain still exists. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I can get the Twitter handle. Wow, Whoa. this is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's super rare. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the irony is I'm probably never going to get to that point because the, f- the fund that I've joined recently, uh, which I've I have the good fortune of working with a bunch of really smart friends uh, and we get along exceptionally well. So as I describe, I think this is my last job. Nice. Might be my last job for the next 15 or 20 years, yeah. I would hope. Yeah. But it feels like it, it feels like a vehicle in which I can be myself and mm-hmm. have fun and make some money. Um, so I kind of every so often when somebody's, looking at a venture fund going, I'll pitch you this idea. It's <laughs> a really cool name for a venture fund. And somebody will pick it up at some point. But yeah, awesome. I have just lots of ones for children. So as every ah. child was born of my three kids, I went out and registered smart domains. They also have Gmails <sighs> addresses. So one's called Alice52Bradford. So she gets really embarrassed when she goes to school and gets called Alice Fifty Two. <laughs> uh, no, actually, there was a, there. There has been a running joke at the point they were born, which was like, we could name them this. It's like, hold on a sec, let me check Gmail. <laughs> Is this domain free? <laughs> Is this domain free? It's like, no, we can't call them that. So yeah, I'm like Matthew Thompson is such a generic name. It's just been the the bane of my life to try to get a domain. So um, I need to name our kids something a wee bit uh, off the beaten track. If there's any hope of getting them something, yeah, they, they'll they'll forgive me one day. They all have dot coms and they all have Twitter handles. That's pretty good going. Yeah. Like. And you've uh, at JD. That's good going. Yeah, that was. Are we two digit? Like, are we two? That was that was really fortunate. Yeah. So I originally had what I usually have, which is JD Bradford. Yeah. Because my first initials are JD. And I can remember reading in TechCrunch, oh, you can swap out your domain for something else. Yeah. And I went, oh, this is really cool. I could try. So I tried JB, and JB didn't exist, and I tried. I can't remember. I went through this whole combination and landed on JD. I went, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. But you do become increasingly paranoid, which is... Um, <laughs> JD just, Sport comes, bam! <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, that, that, one's, that was less of an issue. JD, which is the Amazon of China. No. So one, I'm kind of crossing my fingers and hoping that one day they turn up and go, we really would like your yes. domain. Here's a large check. Sure, sure. The problem is, as it goes on longer and longer, it's like I become a little bit more beholden to, <laughs> like, I quite like this domain. <laughs> and also, uh, I have personally, I was had the good fortune of knowing the, the domain register in Montenegro. That basically means dot me. Right, nice. Like about dot me. 
and they gifted me probably five or six years ago the JD to go ah, outside. So my cool. domain is JD at jd.me nice that, that's my i just given out my email address very cool i saw this picture in my head you're like this this stubborn digital land owner and the, the rest of the city's like getting skyscrapered around it and you're holding on to your wee house i'll never sell no, <laughs> no I, I i'll happily sell if somebody and the irony is um the firm i now work for is based in tennessee uh, and and who's the biggest uh, whiskey producer in Tennessee? Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels. <laughs> so there there is something kind of the world kind of ends up going in the same place. So I'm going, mm, maybe they want to buy my <laughs> <me>. <laughs> So good. Um, first stock question. It's always the hardest one, so just brace yourself. Um, in your own eyes, what was your most successful moment so far? Um, what's my most successful? Finding my wife. Get, persuading my wife to marry me, um, I, I regularly say, and it's absolutely true, I have pure statistics on this, which is everything that's interesting in my life and everything I've done exciting in my life has been after um, I married my wife. Wow. Um, and we got late, married pretty late. So I really didn't become entrepreneurial until I was 40. Like thirty nine forty. Wow! I can remember actually. I launched my very first business properly on my fortieth birthday. So, uh, part of my mission in life is you shouldn't have to wait until you're my bloody age to, <laughs> to go and do in- something interesting in your life. Yeah. Like I've kind of sp- what I'll end up doing is spending the second half of my life catching up on all of the drunken episodes I spent in the first <laughs> half of my life. Um, I think part of it is I. You clearly spend your life psychoanalyzing yourself. Is my wife is very good at saying, if you want to do that, just go and do it. Mm. Um, and where I would have historically probably sat on my hands because kind of self examination of should I do this, should mm-hmm. I not? Um, the the natural instinct is go no. Yeah. Um, she would be much more, if this is going to bug you for the next, like, 10 years, just go and do it. <laughs> Even if it's not successful, just go and do it, and then you can come back. The irony is she did this just after we got married and, and just after we had had three kids in three years. So um, she she single-handedly brought the kids up. I would hardly describe myself as... I, I'm a very delinquent father, and I spend more of my life on WhatsApp with my kids than probably in a face-to-face environment. Having said that, even if I was face-to-face, I think I'd probably get a better response from them on WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> um, the what fl- was the question again? No, that, that's good. You know what, man? That was, that's good. Park that there, man. That's all, that's all gravy. Um, the flip side of it is... Um, what about the most challenging moment and how were you able to overcome it? Um, challenging. I really don't think I've had challenging. I mean, other people might say otherwise. Um, I, as, as somebody who has done interesting things in their life and been quasi-entrepreneurial, I don't really describe myself as an entrepreneur, but have the profound joy of working with lots of entrepreneurs yeah is i I sort of get up every morning and and there's just something's broken Mm -hmm. and something needs fixing Mm -hmm. and the irony is if i get up in the morning and nothing's broken i kind of start to get worried um so the idea of like what's my biggest challenge is it's kind of odd because that's kind of saying like 
breathing. It's like I get up in the morning sure. and I'm just faced by uh, challenges. I think there probably have been some, but what you end up doing is you tend to break them down into much smaller bite-sized pieces. Mm-hmm. And so what looks like an enormous problem uh, or challenge, mm-hmm. normally you kind of go, well, 90, it's like the iceberg. Mm-hmm. 90% of it is irrelevant unless I do this bit. And so when you start to break things down into much smaller digestible pieces, it feels less challenging. Sure. Um, is two weeks on the beach, no laptop, is that a challenge? Um, a, the beach, not good. Um, I, I don't really do beaches very well. Holiday, if, if well, I was going to say holiday of your choice, but then by your choice, you would obviously choose something that would not be a challenge to you. Yeah, the, do you have a hard time switching off? Um, I never switch off. Um, I listened to a, a podcast with um, uh, Tom Hanks, and um, he was describing that he has diabetes, and so therefore he has to go to the doctor on a fairly regular basis. And he'd asked the doctor at one of his sessions, like, when should I retire? What should I do? Um, When should I quit? And he said, actually, don't. Just slow down. Just Mm. kind of continue to do what you do and you enjoy. Just instead of doing five movies a year, do two or do one and slow down into it. But I think this concept of coming back to the nine to five and you get 60 or 65 and you retire, I think all of this kind of is now bunk. Yeah. I think people just slow down. They do less than they did. And in the same way, coming to your point about uh, beaches and things, my life kind of bleeds at the edges, mm-hmm. which is I actually don't think I really have a job. Yeah. Yeah. I do stuff. I really enjoy it. I don't think of it as something that I do to get paid. Yeah. To all of this is cliches. But I genuinely, everything I do kind of just merges. Yeah. And drives the kids nuts because you every every kid stands in the playground and goes, what's your dad do? What's your dad do? <laughs> and when they get asked the question, they stand there and scratch their head and go, not quite sure. He does lots of things. <laughs> he He's, works in business. <laughs> yeah, no, but even, even then, they won't even say that. It's like... I, I don't even have one job. I've like got about six. Sure. It's like I sound like I've got a job at McDonald's <laughs> and, then I, and then I do jump in an Uber, Uber and, yeah, Deliveroo like, to stay fit. And yeah, exactly. And um and I know there's a bunch of people who have to do those things to um make ends meet. I'm really fortunate that I have lots of people I help and I kind of that's just my life. Um and so my wife always struggles with the um, – I do things because I want to do things that are helpful. Mm. I never do things because they make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my wife struggles to say no. When I go, I think I want to start hormonal baths. And she goes, you know how many other things you're doing at the minute? <laughs> Why are you doing this? And it's like, no, this is important to me. I want to do this because this is my way of kind of giving back. Uh, and she goes – fine there's nothing i can say to stop you from doing this so mm-hmm. um even when i'm on the beach i'm probably got a phone and i've kind of got three conversations going on and yeah but it's it's never it's me being helpful rather than being stressful yeah as i say i'm the as i describe to people i'm the coach i'm not the entrepreneur mm-hmm. and that's a very different stress level yeah, yeah, yeah when you're the entrepreneur and you need to have to pay the bills when you're the coach and you're the mentor that's that that 
is feels very different. It's good. If you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for a coffee, and I'll give you the caveat, dead or alive, who would you take? Who would I take? Shackleton. Um, I think he uh, just represents everything which is good and profound. And if he had existed 100 years later, he'd be building a big-ass business somewhere. I don't don't know who that is. Oh, Shackleton, who went to um, the Antarctic. Oh, wow. um, And died on the way. But effectively, you should read the books about it, the way he's inspired people to go and do things, not in a stupid way. Yeah. But it it was... It wasn't a success, yeah. but if you look back, he is held highly by, he was beaten by Norwegians, I think it was, but effectively he's held highly about the way he set the things up and how he got people motivated and things. Mm. But he had he had a bonkers idea, uh, which was, I'm going to go to the South Pole. Yeah. Um, he had the logistics and organization that he had to put it together. He had to inspire people to go, I know this is a really crazy idea. I want to go and do this. Yeah. Um, and his leadership qualities and all those sort of things are, are amazing, amazing. Awesome. Um, but as I say, 100 years later, if he'd been doing it, he'd be building a big-ass business somewhere yeah. in the middle of uh, hormone baths, <laughs> hopefully. That's awesome. Well, you, you taught me uh, you should taught me someone new uh for me to look that one hasn't that one hasn't come up never okay i've never even heard of that and i'm like i'm the guy that has like spreadsheets with like (laughs) thousands of names on it of people from northern ireland yeah awesome uh john last question and it's the the ultimate cliched Mm -hmm. end uh you know if we could turn this recording studio and omar bass into some sort of a time machine Mm -hmm. and we could go back to something we didn't talk about you did you start as an accountant am i right saying that i did yeah um, that was totally unoriginal and uninspiring. <laughs> so, you know, if, if we could go back in a time machine to your desk at that accounting practice and you had a couple of minutes of yeah. uh, that John's time, what would you say to him? Um, what would I say to him? I think the, the things you would say, and even though I kind of started late in my life, I wouldn't necessarily change anything. Um, the this will make a few people giggle and laugh. If you looked at me um, leaving school, going to university, I had this is the late eighties, yeah, and yeah, this is this is this is really scary. Th- thank God for not having digital f- cameras. Um, long curly hair, <laughs> John Bon Jovi, really bad lookalike, ripped jeans, um, oh bro. Um, with backpack with ACDC or Def Leppard on the back. Yeah, I'll give you a tenner if you let me share that on the on the podcast artwork. <laughs> I, I'm not sure there are any. I, I, I think there's one person who I know has one picture, and she she holds it closely to her. It's just like I'm not going to give this away. Anyway, so um, very strong Northern Irish accent, and to some degree. Um, unlike my brother and sister, my brother and sister, when they moved, um, accent changed. Mm-hmm. When they went to England, they could speak in an English accent. And because I've been really bad at languages, uh, what I've discovered is um, my accent never really, really went away, um, but I just speak much slower. Mm-hmm. So it just helps people maybe pick up on the lingo. 
Um, but 18, I hadn't quite figured that out. So um, <laughs> I jumped on a plane. It wasn't on a plane. It was actually on the National Express. Um, went to Bristol University, late 80s, early 90s. Um, so height of the Thatcherite years. Um, Bristol University was full of um, uh, people who had tried to go to Oxford and Cambridge. Yes. But couldn't get in. Yeah. So the failures went to Durham or Bristol. Yeah. And bitching away for three years about <laughs> not being able to go to Oxford or Cambridge. The irony is I'm now really close to Cambridge University. <laughs> so I, I don't ever mention, no, I, I don't talk about <laughs> Bristol. So late 80s, uh, height of Thatcher years, um, bunch of um, people who were bitching and whining about not going to Oxford or Cambridge. They had their, this was a new three series they were lots of people with new wealth, driving up and down from Surrey, very English, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. I've turned up, long hair, ripped jeans, <laughs> um, strong Northern Irish accent. Nobody could understand a word <laughs> I said. I just felt like uh, a fish out of water. Sure. Like I was just like, this is just whatever the opposite of where I should be. And to some degree in my through university in in my early 20s, there was a a lot of that. And I just felt like I was the wrong place in the wrong time doing Mm -hmm. the wrong thing because I had all of these different skill sets. And I was in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. But I kind of got through it. um, But it meant that when I got to the other side of it, I suddenly went, oh, now I know what I'm good at. Mm. And so there's kind of that moment of if I had to go back and have the conversation, be like, it'll be okay at the end. Yeah. yeah. It, it just always felt that I was always rebelling against things. Like the, the – so what are the really cool things? In Northern Ireland, the thing I call it North and the South is really good at just being honest with each other. Mm-hmm. There's not too much BS when you're talking to your mates and you think they're being an ass. <laughs> you typically look at them and say, you're being an ass. Yeah. There's not this, what I would now politely describe as English diplomacy, which yes. is they'll tell you everything but not the truth. Yeah. Um, and that didn't help in corporate life. It didn't help in the middle of England, it's like, you can't say those <laughs> things to people. Um, 20 years later, working in startups, having the intellectual honesty to be able to say to somebody, that's a really bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think really, really helps. Um, and so I think culturally, actually, it really works really well. Mm-hmm. I just had to find my place in the university and the right time. Yeah. Um, and it just took a little bit of time. It's cool. Um, so a lot of it's to do with timing. A lot of it's to do with just actually being honest with yourself and figuring out what is it that you want and what you want to be. Um, I just took, I'm just a bit stupid. I just took a little bit longer to get there. Awesome. Well, John, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Pleasure. Hello, my name is Simon Worthington and I am based in Port Stewart. I am the editor of Turf and Grain magazine, an independent magazine which is committed to sharing the stories, experiences and ideas of the people of Ireland. I listen to Best of Belfast because it does the same thing for Northern Ireland and it shows us all that Northern Ireland has a better story to tell than what is often represented in the mainstream media. My favourite episode is 
the episode with Ryan Crown. Um, Ryan is someone I know and someone whose amazing career I followed quite closely over the years. I support the podcast financially just because it's really important for independent media to receive backing because it's a really important space within our society and this podcast is just doing a really amazing thing for Belfast, if I'm honest. If you've been on the fence about joining the Producers Club and would miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, I'd highly recommend considering joining it today. You can do that over at bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to chatting to you in the WhatsApp group soon. Thanks.